All right. Welcome to episode 75 of Seize the Moment podcast. And today we have a very special guest. We have Sheldon Solomon. He's a social psychologist, philosopher, co-developer of terror management theory, and co-author of The Worm at the Core on the Role of Death in Life. Welcome, Sheldon. Uh, thanks, guys. It's a great pleasure to be here today. Yeah, and for us, it's an absolute honor to have Sheldon on Absolutely. for the simple fact that we are, I would say, kind of an existential slash humanistic podcast. So um, so as we begin, right, before we even get into terror management theory, I actually more than anything wanted to ask you, Sheldon, about what was your foray like into sort of studying social, I'm sorry, socially studying death anxiety? And then also, can you tell us about kind of what it was like actually discovering Ernest Becker's work and in particular, the denial of death? Yeah, sure. I, I would be uh, happy to do that uh, in part because I, uh, you know, I'm an egghead, existential social psychologist, and I think that people have a sense sometimes that, you know, science is like this orderly and linear process on an inexorable road to progress, when in fact it's really more random and haphazard than that, historically and in my case. So my kind of life story with regard to this work uh, really goes back to an experience I had when I was eight years old, and it was the day after my grandmother died. Uh, and, uh, you know, the day before, my mother said to me, oh, go say goodbye to grandma. Uh, she's not well. And I knew she wasn't. She was an emaciated, uh, you know, just uh, completely um, diminished by cancer. But she dies the next day, and I'm sitting around, and I'm sad that my grandmother's uh, dead, but then I got to thinking, oh, wow, um, this means my mom's going to die at some point. And that really kind of unsettled me. And then I used to collect stamps when I was a kid. And I was that night just looking through my stamp collection. And I noticed that all the old U.S. stamps that I had uh, were of dead presidents. I'm like, oh, there's George Washington, there's Thomas Jefferson, and so on and so forth. Oh, wait a minute, they're all dead. And I'm like, oh, grandma's dead. My mom's going to die. The presidents are dead. And then I was like, oh, wait a minute. Uh, that implies that there's going to come a moment in some vaguely unspecified future time when I too will die. And I just remember having one of these, you know, Alfred Hitchcock-like uh, mini existential crises that I then, you know, in psychobabble kind of repressed for a couple of decades. And so fast forward uh, to 1980, I get a job at Skidmore College uh, as a, a professor. Uh, and um, the, I'll spare you the details, but I got my job under false pretenses by claiming that I could teach something that I knew nothing about. Uh, but uh, be that as it may, I was in the library feverishly looking for some uh, Freud books uh, when I stumbled on to some books by this guy, Ernest Becker. And one was called The Birth and Death of Meaning, and the other was called The Denial of Death. And I opened both books and in the birth and death of meaning, he says in the first paragraph, I want to explain why people do what they do. And I'm like, dude, me too. Finally, somebody like just talking uh, without mind numbing jargon, uh, you know, that's essentially a non-pharmacological intervention for insomnia. I understand this guy. And then in the next book, 
uh, the denial of death, first paragraph, he says uh, that the uniquely human awareness of death essentially gives rise to debilitating existential anxieties that determine everything that people do. And immediately I'm like, God, that's me. Uh, and so uh, my PhD was in something completely different. I was trained to design experiments to evaluate the efficacy of non-pharmacological interventions for stress reduction. All right, English translation. Uh, my job was if a doctor said, oh, I have a treatment for anxiety uh, that doesn't require drugs like meditation or biofeedback or something, we would design experiments to see if that was the case. And that's a noble venture, but the minute I saw these Becker books, I'm like, wait a minute. This struck me as deeply personal and profound. And, and then Becker goes on to say, uh, in you know, very simple terms, uh, we're like all living creatures in that we wanna stay alive. But we're different than all living creatures because we're smart enough to know uh, by virtue of our extraordinary uh, uh, cognitive complexity that like all living things, our lives are a finite duration and we too will someday die. And not only that, uh, but it's not just that you're gonna die that's so extraordinarily discombobulating to human beings. That's compounded by the recognition that you could die at any time uh, for reasons that you can't anticipate or control. Now, Becker gets those ideas from Kierkegaard, but just to knee us in the psychological groin, he adds the Freud point that we also don't like that we're embodied animals, breathing pieces of defecating meat that are no more significant or enduring uh, than uh, lizards or armadillos. And, and so his point is that if we as human beings were dis, uh, uh, in an ongoing fashion, aware of the reality of the human condition, you're gonna die. You can walk outside and get smote by a comet or a pandemic. Uh, you know, you're a coal cut with an attitude, spam with a plan. You wouldn't fucking be able to stand up in the morning. You'd be a twitching blob of biological protoplasm, you know, cowering under your chair, groping for a sedative the size of a sport utility vehicle. I got that one from Woody Allen, by the way. But, but Becker says, well, in order to manage that anxiety, we, whether we're aware of it or not, we embrace what Becker called cultural worldviews, beliefs about reality that we share with the people around us that helps reduce death anxiety uh, by giving us each a sense that life has meaning and we have value. And because of that, Becker argues, and what we call terror management theory was designed to determine if he was right, he just says, whether you know it or not, most of our waking lives, conscious or unconscious, are devoted to maintaining confidence in our beliefs, as well as confidence that we're people of value in terms of those beliefs. So that, that's kind of Becker and terror management theory in a nutshell. And basically we started doing research 40 years ago when everybody around us said that these ideas were bullshit. So I, I stumbled onto these books 
my buddies, Jeff and Tom, Jeff Greenberg and Tom Pazinski from graduate school, I call them up. I'm like, you got to read this fucking guy. Uh, he's, he is uh, just pure profundity. And then we started talking over uh, uh, in the US and Canada and in Europe. And I would give talks and I would say just pretty much uh, what I've said to you guys, except back in the old days, I didn't look like a CEO from a Fortune 500 company. I had hair down to my waist and it wasn't even symmetrical. And so we were young and brash and people were like, well, that's just bullshit. Becker is just a pontificator. There's no evidence for these ideas. And so what originally stimulated us to try to test them uh, was just the wholesale repudiation of them by the academic community at the time. Mm -hmm. That's so interesting. So why was there such a big backlash against it, especially since um, from what we know about psychoanalysis, I mean, even going back to Freud, I mean, Freud talked about the death instinct and how that affects us. So how come like there was, why was there such a sort of backlash against Becker? But, but precisely for that reason. So basically academic psychology at the end of the last century was desperately and to a certain extent right-mindedly trying to establish itself as a credible scientific discipline by distancing itself from philosophy and psychoanalysis, uh, which were deemed highly speculative disciplines that were unlikely to get us closer to the truth by virtue of not intersecting with physical reality. Uh, now, on top of that, there was also the fact that in the 1980s, academic psychology was moving away from this idea of what they call grand theories. So you have Freud trying to explain everything. And psychologists, they were just like, no, that's really a bad idea to try and explain everything. Let's just stick to data. And uh, let's not look at what the psychoanalysts or the philosophers are doing, because we don't know how to test those ideas. And so that was another factor. So we're trying to get, trying to distance ourselves. We're not like Freud, trying to distance ourselves from large theories, because people were saying that's a waste of time. Let's just stick to the data. And then there's the fact that, you know, uh, we look like Woodstock throwbacks. We're in our late 20s. Everyone's coming to conferences in their three-piece suits. We're coming reeking of pod in our tie-dyed shirts with magic markers and Bob Marley pictures. So we were kind of annoying. The, the first academic talk that I did was called The Psychopathology of Social Psychology, where I said, why don't social psychologists study anything interesting, it seemed to us that what psychologists were doing at the time was to study only what could only be examined in the context of existing laboratory paradigms. And, and our point was that you're putting the empirical cart before the theoretical horse. You're saying it's not worth studying anything unless we already have a way of studying it. And we are young and stupid. We're saying, fuck that. Why don't we decide what we want to study and then see if we could figure out how to go about studying it. And I guess, so, and this doesn't make us better 
people, by the way, although I would submit at the risk of sounding arrogant that it may in the long run make us better scientists because our view at the time was that we found these ideas important. We found that they had potent explanatory power. My gut told me that it explained my own uh, proclivities uh, as a human being, not being particularly enthusiastic about dying. So we're like, all right, let's try and see if we can, in traditional scientific ways, provide empirical support for these ideas. Yeah, and Becker's work was deeply resonant with people. How, how could you not want to test his ideas, right? Enough people had read his work that had felt something if, if, as if uh, evoked from them, like something that for example, saying uh, that the fact that we're self-conscious animals and uh, makes us different from uh, regular animals and we know that they're that we're worm food, right? Or saying something as cool as we're gods with anuses. Yeah, come right? on, that did it for me. Yeah, yeah, right? And then also um, the idea of, uh, oh, the fact that one day you know that you'll die should make you sort of have this attitude towards life like uh, the world is an arena for heroism right? As if you should try to do everything you can possibly do while you're alive, because you know that there's this impending doom coming. Absolutely. So, you know, I'm a, yeah, I'm a young punk. Well, I don't know how young I am. I'm 26 or 27 in 1980. I read these books and I'm like, you're explaining everything to me in a way where I was like, dude, I've thought about those things, but I didn't have the words for them. Uh, you gave me words to provide an explanation for what I was thinking anyway. And a lot of people felt that way, but not academic psychologists. So basically what academic psychologists used to say is, look, I don't think about death all that much. And so this guy is obviously full of shit. And what we would say is, you don't think about death that much because you're comfortably ensconced in a cultural worldview from which you are able to derive a sense of meaning and value, or you'd be thinking about death all the time. But again, think about that because that would just make people even more pissed because we would go to conferences and I would say, here's what Becker says. And some people would be like, wow, that's profound. In which case I'd be like, yeah, so we're right. Or they'd say, I never think about death at all. Therefore, you're wrong. In which case we would say, but that's because you're repressing your own death anxiety. So am I right or am I right? And you don't win <laughs> debates or scientific arguments on those grounds. It's so, so interesting that like there was such a vehement sort of opposition to it, because I mean, if you think about it, if this was just an intellectual sort of territory, we easily we could say, well, you know, why are we even giving these guys kind of the platform? We just disagree with them. Right. There's no evidence for what they're saying, yada, yada. But it seems like for you guys, like people were like that vehemently opposed to it. Like people were really, really aggressively angry about kind of you purporting these ideas. There you go. So that, you know, we'll go Shakespeare there. What is it? Othello me thinks about doth protest too much. So we saw the vehemence of the resistance uh, as an indication that we had struck a psychological nerve of sorts. That's right.
Yeah, which is like not even surprising if you think about it, because like how many times do we go about our lives and we when somebody, let's say, brings up mortality to us in some sort of way, I can't imagine thinking like, wow, like I don't want to talk to this person. Like, why would I want to think and talk about death? No, yeah. And so I, I could just so I remember. um Actually, I came across your work, Sheldon, and I think it was about 2011 in a, in a college course that was actually hyper-focused on death. So it was a class called Death, Dieting, death, death Dying and um, like sort of, a, I think it was called Death Dying and like Life Crises or like how one manages like pretty much life crises in like the context of death anxiety. Mm-hmm. So um, I came across your work, by the way, oh, I, this is actually a good story to tell you. So I came across your work for the first time in that class in 2011, right, which was taught by um, Dr. Maisha Cherry, who's like pretty prominent on Twitter now. She has like her own podcast. Um, yeah, yeah. Also, do you know Aisha? No, I don't, but I've heard the name because yeah. of that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, um, so yeah, so she, we were reading a book on anthropology, and they pretty much talked about your theory. And they said, well, you know, there's like the death anxiety is pretty much repressed, which is why it's really difficult for us to kind of challenge it or focus on it. And so there was a huge opposition in the class. I remember there was a huge uproar. Half of the class was like, we don't want to talk about this. And the other half was like, oh, we don't, we're not afraid of death. I don't even know what you're talking about. So it turned into like this mass debate of whether or not like we're actually repressing death anxiety or whether we even care. Um, Some people like, Oh, I, you know, the macho guys were like, oh, I don't give a shit. I'm not afraid of death. I think about it all the time, which is probably not true. But what was so cool about that was I remember... I remember thinking like, wow, man, if there's such a huge backlash against this, or if people are so kind of emotionally, um, let's say aroused by the notion, there has to be something to it. Like, mm-hmm. there's no possible way that they can have such a big, because I could tell you like theories that I've come across that I was like flat earth theory, let's say. I have yeah. no, I have no, there's no, I don't care. Like you believe in the flat earth, believe in the flat earth. It doesn't mean anything to me. <laughs> you can comfortably not react to that. Yeah, theory, right. Because right? it doesn't, yeah. it doesn't like, you're not sort of challenging my worldview in any significant way. Whereas when we're talking about about death anxiety and my thinking is if somebody really believes that they've overcome the fear of death yeah that could feel really threatening to them that's right uh, you know what you know extraordinarily well put and you know it, it does make sense to the extent that these ideas are uh, i'm putting uh, my little air quotes here true in the traditional scientific sense of the word then it should engender more resistance than most theoretical claims. I, I, I don't see um, how it could be otherwise. That, that's quite right. Right. And it's so interesting. So, and then Sheldon, can you kind of take us through the data part of it? So like, how did you and Tom and obviously um, your other partner, I don't remember. His yeah, name. that's my buddy, Jeff. Well, so, uh, so what we did very simply uh, was we developed three basic paradigms. I'll describe them and then that'll hopefully be a springboard to talk about how they've been applied in different domains. But the the first thing that we did because we knew how to do it was just to demonstrate uh, Becker's claim that self-esteem serves as what he calls an anxiety buffer. So the most non-controversial aspect of Becker's thought uh, comes from uh, a chapter in his The Birth and Death of Meaning book, which is called Self-Esteem, the Dominant Motive of Man. Remembering he's writing this in the 1970s, hopefully he'd include the rest of the human race uh, in terms of gender-laden prose these days. But um, we did some uh, experiments, and they're fairly simple, where we would just manipulate self-esteem. We would either raise it momentarily or leave it unaltered, and 
then we would expose people to stressful situations like watching a, a video of an autopsy or an electrocution. And then we would just ask them, how anxious were you while you were watching the films? Uh, and what we found is that uh, when people's self-esteem was raised, they were less anxious when they were exposed to a threatening stimulus. Like, that's okay, but that's not really that persuasive for a variety of reasons that I'll spare you the details of. Nothing, no study is persuasive unless it can be re replicated and ideally replicated using different measures. And so we did another study where we raised self-esteem, but we did it in a different fashion. And now instead of having people watch a movie of somebody get electrocuted, we hooked them up to a physiograph machine and measured their physiological arousal while we told them that they were gonna get painful electrical shocks. All right, so now we're talking some serious shit because you're sitting in a lab with a guy in a white coat who just put a metal plate on your arm uh, telling you that Mangala style, you're gonna just get uh, electrical shocks while we measure your arousal. Right, the good news is nobody gets shocked because it is more arousing to anticipate it than it is to actually get shocked. The amazing news is that when we raise people's self-esteem, they were less aroused in anticipating electrical shocks. Right, if, he, if we had a lot of time, I would be like, oh, self-esteem is potent shit. Because yeah, if I call you an asshole, and you have high self-esteem and you're like, all right, I can live with that. All right, that's one thing. But if I tell you I'm about to incinerate you and a momentary elevation in self-esteem is enough uh, to reduce your, your sympathetic nervous system autonomic arousal, that shows that self-esteem really is a very potent way uh, to manage existential anxieties. Noting that uh, let's not confuse or conflate self-esteem uh, with pathological narcissism. And this is important because we are a country of pathological narcissists, starting with Orange Hitler at the top and working our way down to the collective narcissists that are his entire body of supporters that's not narcissism. That, that is extraordinary insecurity masquerading uh, as narcissistic self-inflation. But genuine self-esteem uh, most assuredly reduces existential anxieties. All right, so that's one thing that we did. All right, the next thing that we did uh, was what we call the mortality salience paradigm. So now we show that self-esteem reduces anxiety Next, what we wanted to show is that your culturally constructed beliefs also reduces death anxiety. And now the question is, how do you do that? That's why people said Becker's not a scientist. They're like, this is poetry, but it's not science. How could you possibly prove that our beliefs, my beliefs, your beliefs about reality serve to minimize death anxiety? And again, I'm gonna spare you the details, except I think it's important to note that the way that we figured this out was by accident. 
you know, you never read about this in books and you read a science text and it's like, we did this, we did this, we did this, we did this. That's not really the way it happens. We were hanging out one day and, 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 and we were the lucky beneficiaries of an accident when a graduate student came in and she was in a social work class, death and dying, just like yours. And she's like, wow, we had class today. And, and as a little exercise, we have to write our own obituary. And then she said, oh, and to get in the mood to do that, our professor gave us these two little questions. Please describe your thoughts and feelings about your own death and then jot down what you think you might be thinking at the moment you're about to die. Well, the minute we saw that, my buddy Jeff, who's a genius, he's like, fuck, that's it. That's what we're gonna do. I'm like, what are we gonna do? He's like, okay, we're gonna bring people into the lab. We're gonna have some people answer those questions to remind them that they're gonna die. And then other people will ask them identical questions, but not about dying, but about something painful, but not fatal. You know, imagine being in a car accident and they have to cut your leg off. Imagine having a root canal and they ran out of anesthetic. Imagine failing an exam. Imagine giving a talk in public and getting nauseous and puking on the audience and being humiliated as a result. The idea here is we want to establish that these effects are unique to concerns about your death, not just unpleasant things that make you angry or fearful. So, and then what we said is, well, if Becker is right, when you're reminded that you're gonna die, you should cling more tenaciously to your own beliefs. And we should be able to measure that uh, by, uh, by, by assessing your reaction to other people. More particularly, when you're reminded that you're gonna die, you should like other people who share your beliefs a lot more and you should hate other people uh, who are opposed to your beliefs or, or are merely different. And so the first thing that we were interested in, and this goes back to when Jeff and Tom and I first met in the 1970s, we were always interested in how come people have been beating the shit out of each other since day one, just because they don't share their beliefs. Why is it uh, that we seem as a species congenitally incapable of peacefully coexisting with others who do not share our view of reality? And Becker's answer, it's disarmingly simple. It's, it's what he says is, look, if my beliefs serve to reduce death anxiety, when I run into somebody with different beliefs, I'm fucked whether I know it or not, whether I'm conscious of this or not, if I accept the validity of somebody else's beliefs, I am undermining the confidence with, with which I subscribe to my own. So if I believe God created the earth in six days, and then in the Borneo and the South Pacific, they believe that the earth was created from a giant coconut, you know, then if the pina colada people are right, then the six day union job people must be wrong. And what Becker said in, in another book called Escape from Evil is therefore, when we encounter people who are different, uh, we denigrate, dehumanize, and demonize them at the same time that we try to get them to abandon their beliefs and adopt ours instead. 
And if that doesn't work, just fucking kill them. That's proving that our God and our ideas are superior uh, after all. And that's exactly what we find in our studies. So if we remind Christians that they're going to die, they like Christians more and they hate Jewish people, even though they don't discriminate in control conditions. Germans reminded that they're going to die. They sit closer to people who look German and further away from people who look like immigrants. Iranians reminded they're going to die. Uh, they become more supportive of suicide bombers and more willing to become one. Americans, as you know, uh, are more practical. We're not going to blow ourselves up, but we're more than happy to blow up other people. So when we remind Americans that they're going to die, uh, they are more supportive of using biological, chemical, and nuclear weapons against countries who pose no direct harm to us. And this is particularly true of Americans who report Polit uh, conservative political inclinations. We can keep talking and I can say much, much more, but that uh, is another way that we have gone about studying these phenomenon. And that is that we remind people that they're going to die. And by the way, we don't always do that in the lab. Sometimes we do these experiments outside uh, and we stop people on the street, either right in front of a funeral parlor or a hundred meters to either side. And this is amazing. It wasn't my idea, which makes it all the more brilliant. Uh, our colleague, Robert Wickland, he's in Germany. He just said, well, if you're standing in front of a funeral parlor, death might be on your mind, but you might not even know it. And, and then we did something even more subtle. We bring people back to the lab and we have them read shit on a computer and while they're doing that, we flash the word death for 42 milliseconds, so fast that you can't even see anything has happened. So the point here, and I'll stop in a second, is that the, these experiments show uh, uh, quite consistently that you don't even need to know that you're thinking about death for it to have a really potent effect uh, on your attitudes and behavior. Yeah. And that makes so much sense. Even like um, the way I'm st I started thinking about it is from like a nationalistic perspective. Mm -hmm. So if we're thinking about, let's say the notion of, I want to be part of this greater thing or the greater whole, right. And let's say for me, that's, you know, the United States of America. Right. And let's say I'm like a Reaganite slash like Republican slash Trumper, I guess now um, the idea is like, I want to, I would be afraid of sort of having anything devalue my kind of my bigger picture view of who I am. So if let's say this country is going to live on, obviously in the nation of America is like the greatest country in the world, you know, we're exceptional and whatnot. If anybody challenges that, right, they're pretty much essentially challenging as, you know, obviously a term that you guys use, my symbolic immortality. Yes, that's correct. And that's the danger of the arrogance of Americans to proclaim ourselves God's emissary on earth, demonstrably superior and innately so to any other country. Uh, you know, it's done two things. It's made us more than almost anybody uh, extraordinarily nationalistic when intimations of mortality are aroused and makes it congenitally impossible for Americans to learn anything uh, from other countries. So in other words, uh, all uh, the, these, the effect that I just said, where you, you remind somebody that they're gonna die and they like their people more and other people less, 
That's true around the world. It's been found in 25 countries on five continents, uh, but nowhere to the extent that we find it here, uh, where just any alternative to what the U.S. does uh, must be on those grounds, because we are, after all, the best uh, denigrated uh, as un-American and therefore unworthy of our consideration. You know, this is probably going to take us just a little far afield. But, you know, one of the, you know, absurd things about being an American is that we are the only country on earth where people know how to read and where there's a stable, um, a stable um, government where people don't have health insurance. You know, it's really quite shocking. And yet, when, uh, when we're like, wow, all these other countries have health insurance, why don't we maybe see how they do it? The average response, almost invariably, I don't want to get political yet, we can, uh, but uh, amongst those who tend to define themselves as conservative, they're like, why should we look at what other countries do? Right. We're the best. Yes. All right. But I, you know, to be profane, I, you know, I describe uh, Americans in general. Frank Zappa, the day after Ronald Reagan won, you guys are too young in 1980. Uh, he said the average American treats intelligent behavior as if it were some sort of hideous physical deformity. Uh, and I, I think it's right. I, I call it anal cranial fusion because here we are uh, arguing in the middle of a fucking pandemic, in the middle of a depression, in the middle of race riots while the West Coast of America is on fire, we're the only country. Uh, and of course, we're about to, uh, you know, kick 20 or so million people off uh, of health insurance. But if we were able to overcome our sense that we're the best at everything, uh, we might then be able to step back and say, oh, let's look at what these other countries do. And what we might notice is that there's a lot of different ways for everybody to have health insurance. And it doesn't require that you commit to either a left or a right political position. And this is what drives me nuts, because there are some countries uh, like Canada and England, well, they have single payer systems. Other countries like Switzerland and Germany, and I'm not claiming to be a, a, an expert here, but everybody there has insurance, but it's done privately. And, and so this shouldn't be a pissing match between uh, the left and the right. Uh, if we could agree as Americans that everyone should have health care, and then if we could on the left and right admit of the possibility that there's a lot of ways to accomplish that, I think we would make a considerable headway. All right, that was a detour, but back to- no, Actually, that's good. Uh, I was wondering actually, how do you think maybe we could get out of that sort of dualistic thinking, out, yeah. of, that, out of thinking that we're the best? Because I know like Kirk Schneider, for example, who we also had on the, sh on the show. Love Kirk, he's great. Yeah, yeah, and he's he's working on uh, having these sort of um, dialogues with people on different, you know, uh, from different sides of the political spectrum and sort of having people, and like part of his method, if I remember correctly, is sort of steel manning 
what you think the other person's uh, perspective is and right. trying to actually explain what you think it is that they're thinking. Because so many people, when they get into these sorts of fights or um, ideology, you know, battles of ideology, they don't generally, you don't have people listen to each other unless it's like two really, I'm not, I won't say enlightened, but people who yeah. are really patient, able to listen to each other. Do you think like there's any way we can sort of on some kind of mass level somehow make it popular or i don't know somehow remedy this uh this issue and by the way and just to add on to that because i think it would be important and if we do do that right would that relate to sort of helping become people become more aware of their death in a way that's i guess healthier in a way that's kind of conducive to um to unity yeah so the, yeah all of the above i i, I do think that in the long run, not surprisingly, given our take on things, uh, that uh, we, you know, to at the risk of sounding polemic, yeah, it's time for humanity to grow up. As a species, we're still pissing in our pants, and um, it, it's time, as Albert Camus put it, to come to terms with death. Thereafter, anything is possible. And the point that we make in our work is that death anxiety is not going to go away, nor should it. That's not the problem. The problem is our tendency to repress death anxiety, to bury it under the psychological bushes where it comes back to bear bitter fruit. So we already talked about uh, how uh, that death reminders uh, turn us into racists and xenophobic uh, serial killers. Um, death anxiety radically alters our political preferences. So we're apt to embrace uh, populist political leaders. Death anxiety makes us uncomfortable with our bodies and uncomfortable in nature and, and causes us to plunder the environment, turns us into insatiable consumers of money and, and stuff. It, it, uh, makes people who drink, drink more, smoke, smoke more, eat cookies, eat more, watch TV, um, watch TV more. So the point is, is that, you know, if we don't, uh, as a species, step back and come to terms with death, I think Robert J. Lifton, the psychohistorian, is correct that uh, we may be the first form of life to literally be responsible uh, for our own extinction. You know, it can turn us into, you know, hateful, warmongering, proto-fascists plundering the planet and our insatiable drive for dollars uh, and dross in kind of an, an inebriated fucking Facebook Twittering stupor. So yeah, we better uh, come to terms uh, with death. And But how are we gonna do that? So that's back to the other part of the question. I think what we need to do, and I know what we need to do, is to try to the best of our abilities to start every conversation with, well, let's say we're talking domestically in the US now, how are we gonna have some kind of rapprochement with people that we might not agree with? And um, you know, so uh, we, this is a very Republican town. Uh, my neighbors are mostly, uh, we have a lot of policemen, we've got some firemen, uh, we live in a white town, uh, and they're all Trump people. And, 
it, it doesn't help when I tell them that I believe Orange Hitler to be the most dangerous person on earth and that he's made more progress in his short time as president, uh, undermining democracy and uh, the well-being of the entire planet. He's ahead of Hitler. All of those things are true, but you're not gonna have any constructive conversation with somebody who doesn't share those views uh, if you start with that approach. So what I try to start with is, can we agree that we're Americans? Mm -hmm. I think that psychodynamically, we always need to start by recognizing our superordinate common identity. So my buddy Tom, he did an amazing study with his students where if we call it a common humanity prime, if, if you, when we tell people, look, everybody on earth has more in common than we are different, if we then remind people that they're going to die, they don't hate people who are from another country. And that makes sense because there's nobody to hate if we're all in one tribe. So I think, uh, and, and by the way, and now I'm getting uh, I'm free associating, but you know, when we look back on history, if there is any in the next six months, and I mean that only half glibly because I think this is an incredibly volatile time that's unprecedented in the history of our country, what we will find, in my opinion, is that President Trump's worst transgression uh, was that he never started to govern. He announced his reelection campaign the morning of his inauguration and so even before he became president, he was already campaigning for a second term. And you can go back and listen to his inauguration speech. Hitler would have been proud. It was all fucking Stephen Miller. And there was no attempt whatsoever to say the election's over. Now we're all Americans. Now it's time to come together. Now, being long-winded here, but I don't think you make any progress uh, with someone from the other side of the proverbial aisle unless you start by saying, let's agree, aren't we Americans? Can we at least agree on that? And, and the point that I would make is we can't right now. And this is fucking Trump's fault because he has defined an American as someone who uh, agrees with his viewpoint. You know, as much as the Avogadro's number of other misdeeds, that's a chemistry term, it's the number of molecules in a mole, it's several gazillion. Uh, in other words, this fucking guy, it, it could not be more uber terrible, but his most terrible thing uh, was putting a permanent rift between us. So we've got nothing in common to start as a basis for a conversation. But anyway, being long-winded, but if we could ever do that, the next thing that I would submit is that we've got to stop talking. Abraham Lincoln called them pernicious abstractions. Stop using stupid shit like freedom, uh, liberty, uh, socialism, Antifa, defund on the left and the right are emotionally charged labels that have nothing to do uh, with the principles that underlie them. 
and that serve to ensure that we just lob uh, uh, angry uh, epithets at each other uh, without the capacity to listen to each other. Now, beyond that, I don't know what I would do next. You know, what I try to do when I talk to my neighbors uh, is like, I'll be like, oh, um, you know, what do you think about social security? And they'll be like, I love it. It is after all the most popular program uh, in the history of America. And then I'll be like, uh, uh, what about that word social? Why doesn't that bother you? And again, now I'm being a dick, but I asked my neighbors to go back and to read in the newspapers that Social Security was demonized by Republicans as socialism. And that, in fact, uh, what, and now I am being a little political, but this is important. Uh, everything the Republicans are now doing today dates back to their original hostility to the New Deal uh, because the worst thing that could ever happen to a Republican would be for Americans to catch on that they actually like what government does to the extent that it could be done effectively. Right. Uh, and, but that, that, that's really straying from your question. But what I try to do is to say, well, uh, oh, you like Social Security. That's a social program. Everybody gets it. We are a social species. What, what's wrong with that? And, and again, it doesn't always work because they'll because what folks in my town will say is, oh, well, yeah, I like Social Security, but, but President Trump's going to keep that. And I'm like, no, with all due respect, he is on record as saying uh, that it, he is committed to, if not um, eliminating it, at least reducing it drastically. You know, and then I'll go to the health insurance. Do you like health insurance? Do, do you think that people should have health insurance? And, and most folks will say yes. Uh, and then they'll, my Trump-loving people will be like, yeah, and, uh, and Trump is going to give us insurance. I'm like, no. He's going to take away your insurance. But I'm even being more emotional than I try to be when I'm speaking to somebody under those conditions. The problem, though, and it's a daunting one, is that Trump supporters are in a hermetically sealed container uh, that uh, in um, it's Eric Hoffer in a book called The True Believer. He said that's the problem. Uh, with populist leaders who form essentially a personality cult is that they create a fact-proof screen between their followers and reality uh, where the truth bounces off them like rainwater cascading off a duck's ass in a hurricane. So to get back to my long-winded response, I think we have to start uh, by identifying our common identity I think we have to try to engage people by trying to figure out, well, what do we agree about? And then to just to the best of our abilities, gently point out that facts matter. And that 
there's a tremendous asymmetry in our country right now in that regard. So this is just, and again, it doesn't, it's not persuasive because it is a fact that 80% of what tumbles out of Trump's face or Twitter is a lie. It is also a fact that about 20% of what comes from Biden or Hillary Clinton or Bernie Sanders uh, is a lie. So the base rate of lying or misrepresentation has always been about 20% uh, for politicians. Nothing to be proud of, but better uh, than a, a sociopathic liar incapable of intersecting with reality. I'll stop there. That's not very satisfying, except that it's a really important question. And I think we have to keep going at it. And, and yeah. you know, I, don't, I don't know how best to do that. I think it's important. No, absolutely. Uh, definitely acknowledging our common uh, humanity, right? Acknowledging that we're on the same team. Yeah. <clears throat> and I think also tactful framing is important, right? For example, yeah. I mean, also not to stay too much on political, uh, but let's say this. So for example, if you said to somebody who let's say is a Trump supporter, oh, uh, you used the buzzword socialized medicine. Yeah. You'll create an immediate reaction. Like, no, I'm not for that. Yeah. But if you if you frame it differently, uh, like, or maybe you'll first ask, um, so do you like having healthcare? What kind of healthcare do you have? Yeah. Would you like if everybody had healthcare, if we found a way to make that work or something yeah. like that? Um, also, if let's say they still go into the fact that it's uh, uh, socialism or something, even though let's say it's not, again, you could use an example of social security, right? Or something else and then try to, and then anytime they come back at you, try maybe uh, you, you listen to them, uh, their entire point of view, maybe you reiterate what it is that they said, take a moment, then you give your two cents. And then hopefully, because they feel understood by you, they may give you that same courtesy back after you saying what you say. Although I think it, dep it's, it depends on the context and the situation. But I feel like if you can establish a, a rapport with someone, they're more forgiving when you give a sort of dissenting view. So I don't know. It, it depends. I think it's a, it's a very tact. You have to be very and then, careful. And then I think also, I mean, it's okay to concede some things, right? Like, so something that you always talk about. So like, um, Alan's kind of a big proponent of sort of understanding and studying like the ego and kind of how it affects our decisions and how it affects the way we kind of perceive other people's yeah. beliefs and what they say. Um, and so my thinking is that if it's okay to concede and say like, Hey, look, look, I understand why you're afraid of socialism. I mean, to be honest with you, look, I'm Russian, right? All, all of our families from the Soviet Union. So like they hate communism i mean people have had businesses taken away from them so we can understand that and we can concede that and we could say look we get why you wouldn't want totalitarian communism obviously but right on the other hand like what we have is this other argument that says the new deal is not like that exactly right we're talking about almost pretty much apples and oranges so while there are some similarities to it and definitely some of the promises may be similar unquestionably right what we're looking at are really two different frameworks of creating a good and a just society no, no, uh, that's awesome, Leon. I, I uh, you're you're quite right. Um, socialism, as you know, we don't know if it's a good idea or not because it's never been tried. So Jesus would not be a Christian if he was here today. Marx would not be a communist, and Freud would not be a psychoanalyst. Mm -hmm. And we should um, 
concede that um, and move on. But on the other hand, like uh, this, again, this, uh, we're dabbling in particulars right now. But one of my points, you know, and I have the same argument. So I've got my neighbors on one side of me and then my kids and their friends, they're in their early 30s, you know, so they're all Bernie Sanders, you know, we need yeah. Green New Deal, we need Medicare for all. And I, I'm like, you know, I'm, I'm gonna piss you off because I'm against the Nazis of the right as well as the Nazis on the left. We need health insurance for everybody. And there is no doubt that in a perfect universe, the best way to provide it would be a single payer system along the lines of uh, what the progressives are proposing. There's also no doubt that Americans, it's not in our DNA to accept any kind of uh, arrangement uh, that completely obliterates the private sector. And so here you have Joe Biden, who's being dismissed unfairly in my, he was not my preferred candidate, but I'm a little bummed right now that he's not getting more respect and regard for trying to thread the needle. So he's like, oh, you know, why can't we have a public option along with Obamacare? If you want private insurance, you can have it. If you can't get private insurance, you have a public way. And by the way, even though I hate her, that was Susan Collins' proposal when Obamacare was originally proposed. Right. Mm -hmm. She said, why don't we do both? And then, oh, what, what, let me propose, she said a, a remarkably unusual idea. Let's do it for 10 years and see what works. And then we can decide. So there's, I don't see in principle, except again, that orange Hitler has muddied the waters to the point where Americans have been lobotomized and can no longer literally carry a thought. Yeah. There was a time when that should have been a sensible proposal that everyone should have been able to agree about. And interestingly, go, go, go. So I think what's so interesting is that so why I absolutely agree with you is I think it's actually it could have been a great experiment for both sides. Right. So let's say right. So if we're if we're keeping both you know private insurance and the public option, it's like, okay, let's see what works better. So I mean for the Republicans, obviously the fear is that, you know, pretty much if you know private insurance is um I'm sorry, the fear is that uh let's say we're going to wipe out, you know, private insurance and this is, you know, wonderful conglomerate, et cetera. So it's like, okay, so let's do a public option. And if private insurance is the preferred choice then private insurance wins out. But if like for the socialists, right, obviously the public option is the better option, then obviously, you know, that's the one that wins out and more people kind of gravitate toward that. But it's like, because we didn't allow ourselves to have that experiment, obviously you have these two different ideologies that really aren't really based on anything, at least in terms of the context of kind of American history. So we won't really ever know until the public option happens. My assessment being, you know, kind of more left leaning and socialist is that, yeah, if there's a public option, private insurance is going to be eventually wiped out. But I mean, obviously, we're not really getting the opportunity to see that for ourselves in kind of real time. No, that's right. And let's remember for what it's worth that the, the original impetus for universal insurance, it was originally a conservative idea. <laughs> and, it, and it had nothing to do with human decency. 
it, it, my understanding is that conservatives realize that people dying in the streets are bad for business right. and that the best way, you know, insurance is about sharing the risk. And their view was if, if people are in good health, uh, they're going to be in a better position to buy stuff. And so two things, I, I love your point, Leon, which is one way to appear conciliatory and willing to concede is to say, well, let's try it. I may be right or I may be wrong. And so might you. That's why I'm, an, I'm enamored with this. And Americans, we used to be very pragmatic. Let's try it. And if it works, we'll do it. And if not, we'll do something else. Because the other thing that, again, I'm finding astonishing right now is our refusal to stimulate the economy at a time where we're on the cusp of a depression that'll make a century ago look look pleasant. And But my point is that the... And, and you've heard about the guaranteed income that everybody gets, you know, like 2000 bucks a month. Yeah, we actually did a whole episode on it. Yeah, you oh, the university. Okay. Basically. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. When you did that, did somebody tell you that that was also a conservative idea to begin with? Oh, interesting. Well, because the, what the conservative said uh, was, uh, if you give a poor person a bunch of money, they're not going to stick it under their fucking pillow. They're going to go spend it. And so the, the conservative idea originally was let's insure people, let's give them money for Twinkies and, and apples. Mm-hmm. And right now, if you say that, you know, you're like, wait a minute, you're like Fidel Castro and, and Karl Marx and Charles Manson all put together. But I wish we could just step back and think about these things without immediately assuming a a partisan political position. Uh, And so if I don't stroke out, I want to write another book and it's it's going to be called Why Left and Right Are Both Beside the Point. And my argument is that this is madness, that they're both uh, conservative and liberal politics are each based on assumptions about human nature that are wrong and that renders them both intellectually and morally bankrupt. And, and moreover, when we see liberal and conservative as like on a continuum where if you lean one way, you're leaning against the other way, I find that tragically simple-minded. Uh, because why can't we step back and, and grant uh, that there are some instances uh, where traditionally liberal views might be more productive, but others where a, a more conservative approach might serve us well. So, yeah, I'm urging crass pragmatism, but that also has the advantage of not privileging either position in an a priori fashion. So I like how you were saying it, Leon, that it's like if we can talk to people that we might not agree with. And if we come uh, with uh, an attitude uh, of uh, mutual respect, and if we concede at the outset that we have common goals, but may disagree about how to best approximate them, and and then insist that uh, we have our own views, 
that we would be willing to modify in light of reason or fact. And, and so that's another thing, not to pile on Orange Hitler, but uh, one of the things I've been saying to folks on these podcasts, I'm like, hey, um, uh, uh, note to self, um, let's not have another malignantly narcissistic sociopath who has delusions of grandeur and is also paranoid. Uh, it is true. Uh, that a mental illness should not disqualify you from becoming president, but that configuration surely should, uh, because those people are congenitally unable to admit that they're wrong. And you don't want anybody ever in a position of power uh, who cannot be wrong. And um, so, but but anyway, I forgot where, where we were starting on that. Well, I, I did have a realization while you were talking. So it's actually kind of interesting if you think about it. So when we're talking about like social security and kind of social welfare or benefits by the government, right? So the idea is like, well, you know, these are all handouts. We shouldn't be giving them to people, right? And sort of the former conservative notion that, well, they're going to spend money. They're going to pump the economy. That's ignored, right? But when we're talking about sort of like tax subsidies for the rich, it's like, no, 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 we should do that because it's all going to trickle down. So when it's tax subsidies for the poor, apparently they're selfish and they're going to kind of be misers or whatever. And then when it comes to the rich, well, the benevolent rich are going to sort of pro make us all prosperous. So yeah. it's kind of interesting because this is there's this inherent bias of like poor people are shit and selfish, but rich people like these are sort of, you know, going back to like Randian philosophy and like even Plato, right? These are the benevolent philosopher kings who are going to bestow all of their wealth onto the rest of us. Crazy. No, I'm with you, comrade. I mean, that as a, a compliment because <laughs> yeah. you happen to be right so uh, in a in a lot of ways so first of all and you guys know this it, it is first of all a fact uh that uh government monies in the form of welfare go more to red states than blue states they go more to white people than people uh, of color um it is a fact beyond that that the tax advantages to the rich just in the form of mortgage interest deduction, uh, 401k, and whatever those savings accounts that you use to put money in for your kids going to college, I think they're 529s or something. Mm -hmm. uh, we, the government, uh, there is more money not taken in through those tax breaks than we pay out in welfare. And see, this is important because, I, I, and I needed to understand this also, it, what there's an asymmetry when people say, oh, you're giving the poor people stuff. It doesn't feel like rich people are getting anything because in that case, it's what's not taken away. And I, I, I'm not sure if I'm making sense, but this is really important because rich people they don't see two things. First of all, they don't see uh, that the amount of money that we spend in welfare is less than what we would take in if they were taxed on all of those breaks. And then you just don't, you don't see it. it, it and I, I get it. It, it. There's a difference between handing somebody something and not taking away something that they already have. And, um, and even here, I really think it's important. You know, I have 
there's, you know, I'm saying this, I don't mean this pejoratively, but we live in a somewhat Republican town. My wife's family are, are primarily Republicans. Some of them are the well-to-do types that when they come to visit, they fucking fly their own little airplane uh, to see us. And it's hard to um, communicate uh, these ideas because there are some studies, I can't remember who did it. It's a researcher at Cornell. I didn't know that. So I'm like, you know, I'm like, uh, you know, I live in a tar paper shack and our car is held together with duct tape. And yet I'm at the bottom of wealthy, you know, I'm not. Uh, and so when, when you tell people, look, if you own a house and if you have a retirement account, you are benefiting a whole lot more than you think. And I didn't realize that. I didn't realize that, um, uh, you know, it's, it's really one of the most racist things that we've done in the history of America is to prevent people of color from owning homes and from getting access to the education from the GI Bill. You know, we've had a cement ceiling. You know, I like how uh, John Stewart put it on Stephen Colbert a couple of months ago. Whitey's been building equity for all these decades while people of color are just trying to build equality. Yeah. Uh, but the, the point is, is that there was a study where if you tell middle class and upper middle class people, if you explain to them, look, you've gotten massive breaks from owning a home and having a retirement account and employee provided health insurance, poor people don't get that. Well, people who identify as moderate or liberal, when they learn that, what they say is, fuck, I didn't realize that's not right. I should pay more taxes. Conservatives or Republicans say, I didn't realize that. And now lower my taxes more. <laughs> Kill the poor. <laughs> yeah. And what's, like, what's the interpretation and then the conservatives are taking? Like, why would they need to lower their taxes or have them lowered? Well, uh, my interpretation is uh, that, I mean, here I'll run the risk of being harsh. I, I, I see the Republicans uh, as whether they're aware of it or not um, being essentially motivated uh, by the stupidest idea in the history of social science, which is John Locke's idea that in a state of nature, there are only autonomous individuals who have the right to pursue their own desires to accumulate property uh, unencumbered by concern for anyone else. Right. Uh, you know, so it's Margaret Thatcher saying societies, there's no such thing as societies. There's only individuals. Right. And then there's the Ronald Reagan getting elected, you know, at the same time that Ivan Boski is saying greed is good or what good is the moon if you can't buy it or sell it. Um, you know, so I guess that would be my view uh, is that uh, this is borderline narcissistically sociopathic to be blithely concerned about one's own welfare. And in fact, uh, to see, 
your accomplishments uh, as the sole result of your talents and efforts, which allows you to assume that anyone less well off uh, is such by virtue of their deficiencies in that regard. I see pretty much that uh, the distinction in the most global sense between generally decent and intelligent people, depending upon which side of the political spectrum right. that they reside on. Yeah, and then that kind of lets me kind of puts the, I guess helps me put the two together where I can see the link between like, let's say kind of that version of narcissism or, uh, yeah, I guess that would be grandiose narcissism with, you know, death anxiety, because if we're thinking about it, what that could say is that if there's an objective way for me to show that I'm superior, I'm special, I'm important, right, then all of a sudden, right, I don't have to think about my death, right? Now death kind of goes into the background because I'm the special being who has a special place in the universe through my own efforts. And that kind of reminds me of the great Gatsby, where he said that, well, you know, my life is going up, 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 right? Even though obviously that's not realistic. But the idea is in order to kind of prevent myself from my mortality, uh, maybe sort of growing up, if you're obviously Gatsby growing up as a poor kid and God knows where, my thinking that it's either I am special or I'm on my way to being special can definitely help me kind of pre pre prevent and reduce any sort of death terror that I could have. So I guess in that respect, Sheldon, like what would you say if that's the case, right? If we're dealing with, let's say, you know, kind of for to simplify it, let's say two people, right? So you have one person who's obviously downtrodden and let's say they have been kind of, um, they haven't had the breaks that the other one has had, but then you have the other person who's obviously inordinately, um, let's say narcissistic or has a sense of superiority, but you can kind of tell that the reason why, or one of the main reasons why they need to feel superior is because they're so terrified of death that admitting to this other person that, hey, we're actually exactly the same would be just like sort of the whole repression or the whole kind of facade kind of coming down. And, you know, the sort of the, um, it, there would be a pouring out of like, I'm insignificant, I'm mortal. Oh my God, how am I going to deal with this? Yeah, uh, awesome. Um, if I stroke out, you're going to come up and take over on my classes here. Uh, <laughs> I mean, it as a compliment uh, of teaching Thank you. existential psychology. And we just did the great Gatsby. Uh, nice. You know, it's a hundred years ago. It is extraordinarily in a really foreboding way anticipating um where we are now and i i think you pretty much have captured it what what uh, uh, you know again this doesn't make me a, a better human but somebody reminded me that in the 1990s i wrote something about donald trump where I declared him a caricature of a stereotype of a malignant narcissist. And I then said, this is a reflex of death anxiety. That the reason this fucking guy has to write his name on everything around him, the buildings, the airplanes, the women, the steaks, the vodka, the water bottles, uh, is that he is a, a, an un, a, an, the OCD... He, he is a walking amalgamation of every death-denying affectation. And I do think that, uh, and, I, I'm, and Becker Wood also, in, in the Escape from Evil book, in a chapter called Money, the New Immortality Ideology, Becker just says that equality is unendurable to someone who subscribes uh, to uh, an economic system where your value is derived in proportion to the degree of success. 
And I can send you guys this. There was a study a couple of years ago that I just saw uh, by a business school, I think it's Cornell, where they showed that people who score high uh, on narcissism, they are also supportive of economic arrangements where there's high levels of inequality as long as they perceive that they're going to be able to get to the top. Mm -hmm. So that, uh, that extraordinary support for the point that you're making. For those folks, it, the only way that they're not riddled with death anxiety is to be able to say, I'm the best and mm -hmm. fuck the rest. And again, not to tie everything back to politics, but I would like to make this point, And that is that uh, everyone's wondering right now why President Trump is so intransigent and won't concede the election, it's because he can't. You know, when when Joe Biden said in the debate, it is what it is because he is who he is, uh, we're witnessing right now, uh, uh, and it's gonna be dramatic and traumatic because for him to admit that he lost would unleash a tsunami of death anxiety uh, on uh, this poor wretched soul from which he would be incapable of recovering. I don't think it's a surprise that he's not appeared in public basically uh, since the election. I don't think it's a surprise that he couldn't even show his face in Florida. Um, this guy's gonna be hunkered down until they can steal the election or until he comes up with some dramatic display uh, florid bullshit, if you'll pardon the expression, such that he can declare what has happened as a victory for him. And if need be, my suspicion is that he will announce his candidacy for 2024 yeah. prior to departing, uh, because I don't find him psychologically capable of conceding anything and we will all be the worse for that yeah yeah plus if you look at his leadership skills i mean i, I understandably he is a very uh, certain and confident sort of character which does appeal to people yep. people see certainty they see somebody who's very congruent in their words actions behaviors all of that automatically they're thinking okay that's a leader right and enough people buy into his shit so that's why you know they'll listen to him more and then more people get into groupthink right but what's fascinating is during even especially as uh, COVID was happening uh, in terms of uh, economic despair, all of that, anytime he addressed the nation, did you ever feel like you he would be able to calm you down in any of the speeches? <laughs> like no, like your morale was boosted <laughs> besides the whole make America great again thing, which, by the way, I, I get that empowerment side of things for that. No worries. But as far as in an actual crisis, I didn't feel like he was somebody you want to be in the leadership position. Of, yeah. I mean, I, I think it goes without saying, but yeah. when you listen to, uh, sorry, uh, when you listen to Biden on the day he was elected and he, he gives a speech right after Kamala Harris and he talks about everybody uh, being unified, right? Uh, we're all Americans. It doesn't matter if you voted for me, you didn't vote for me. I'm still for you, right? And he said it in a very sort of powerful fashion. Like, I'll be honest with you, I'm, I mean, I, I listen to different uh, speeches and there are ones that can that can move you. Others that are just you just feel like they're just kind of giving you something scripted that just sounds nice. 
but I actually felt a real morale boost. I said, wow, this is a stark difference between how he speaks and how Trump speaks. Now, uh, and I'm, again, usually I don't get very political on the show. I try to be as centrist as possible. Anytime somebody comes from the Trump side, they give some sort of opinion, try to listen to it and, and you know, embrace it and, and see where they're coming from and maybe see where we could sort of meet in the middle. But it, it's clear that when you look at what an ideal leader should be in terms of the character traits you would want, uh, especially as a role model, not just for the adults in this nation, but even children, right? Like th this is what a leader should be, yep, right? Yep. It's not how he behaves for sure. And although uh, Biden wasn't also my first pick either, right? As far as demonstrating leadership capability and being able to boost morale, and as far as being that kind of figurehead, not including other forms of politics, I know it's a very simplistic view, but um, he's definitely good for people's morale as far as that goes, I, I would say. Um, and sorry, I actually wanted to transition into this. I, I wanted to ask this earlier. Sorry. Sure, sure. So I, I didn't. I don't mean to wax uh, poetic, but. Uh, wouldn't you say that the you're somebody who probably exudes probably the greatest strength might be someone who is actually willing to face their death and really come to terms with it as opposed to collect all these things and and strive for status and all of that in order to sort of uh, avoid that death uh, anxiety? Yeah. Oh yeah, I I would agree um, entirely. I I think this is important and not uh, you know just to go back to. Biden for a moment, I would insist that his humanity is infused with and informed by his own tragic experiences right. with death. And I also agree with you that what he did uh, in his first speech after it was declared that he was the winner was masterful and moving. I, I rarely and moved and I, I was jumping around um <laughs> like this fucking guy is doing the right thing if you'll pardon the expression great film by the way but the the you know because the first thing out of his mouth was i am working for all of you and note that he always says i am working as hard for those of you who voted against me as for those who have voted for me the choice of order, you know, never has Trump said anything about working for anybody who doesn't support him. Right. But he was inclusive from the outset, emphasizing his responsibility for those who opposed him. Yeah. And then there's the fact that everything he said was infused with a sincere and genuine concern. Now, in the Trump case, he just can't do that. Sociopaths are devoid of empathy. And that's why I don't think someone in that should be in that kind of position of power. You can make a case that on occasion, a, a domineering sociopath might be uh, the best leader. Although I would assert that that would have been maybe 500,000 years ago when you're standing on a rock and you don't have time uh, to make a decision by having a meeting where you get to exchange opinions. Uh, the, the fact is, is that there may be circumstances and evolutionary psychologists have written about this, 
where you actually are better off in a very narrow band of instances uh, with an utterly self-confident sociopath who acts without hesitation. That's different. And when Jane Goodall, the primatologist, saw Trump in 2015, when he declared he was going to run for president, she said, I've seen that before. That's an alpha chimp. <laughs> but there's another kind of leadership in humans, and it's not by dominance. It's by wisdom. Um, we will follow a dominant leader, but that's out of fear. It's not out of, out of admiration uh, or respect. Uh, and yeah, so back to your point, uh, though, Alan, I, I, I do think that Biden did uh, a fine job and that that's the hope. And, you know, I'll say one more thing at the risk of annoying people across the spectrum. Yeah, it wasn't my first choice. He's the only candidate, in my opinion, who could have beaten Trump. He's the only one who might be able to appeal to the thin slither of humanity that may have supported President Trump, but is potentially amenable to reason. And I, I urge my progressive friends to be patient for a moment and to let him get settled, then all ahead full, and let's nudge him uh, to do the right thing. Uh, that, that's just my view of things, that um, patience might now not be a bad thing. Absolutely. Yeah. So Shelton, I mean, interestingly, I think, um, so just going back to the topic of death anxiety. So from what I understand from what you've told us so far is that essentially it's not death anxiety that itself is the issue. It's pretty much these toxic ways of coping, which obviously kind of divide us, pit us against one another, and kind of even in the long run, I would say probably sabotage our own lives. So from your perspective, in terms of like, I guess, returning or creating a form of I guess, kind of ubiquitous mental health, right? How is it that we can begin to deal with death anxiety in a way that's obviously not only sort of uh, more conducive to one's mental health, but much more conducive to an overall sense of community and fostering that sense of community? Yeah, okay, so that's one of these. I, I'm gonna go with, well, if I could answer that, you know, <laughs> I'd, I, I'd be set up for life because that's the, you know, really the high dollar question uh, that we should all be asking. It's like, well, all right, you know, what implications does this have for society writ large? And, you know, to maybe state the obvious, I think that our general point has been, well, let's consider the merits of circulating these ideas widely so that people, regular people, and that's why I like what you guys are doing, let's get these ideas out there into public discourse and, and let us uh, start to consider our claim that we're the most death denying society in the history of earth. That, um, you know, if you look at most Americans have never seen a, a dead person. Um, we spend more on cosmetics to keep from looking old than we do on education and social welfare. You don't even see old people. They're all fucking blue haired down on the shuffleboard courts in Florida, where I would be if we could travel. But is that, and is that we, and it's not even 
um, most parents are like, oh, I can't talk to my kids about death. They don't understand it and they're not concerned about it. That turns out to be untrue. They're concerned about it long before our parents think and they can understand it. We don't, um, we really, it's just a taboo topic, right? But there are changes. We've got like the death cafes, we've got death positive, we've got um, the uh, hospice and palliative care. I, I think we're getting to a point where we can begin to have discussions that can be fruitful moving forward. Absolutely. And I, I, I do think that that's helpful because I think, you know, you guys are younger than me, but like I, I grew up, you know, in the whatever, I'm 66. So I grew up in the ass and the American dream where it's always assumed that things are gonna get better. And I think some of the fucking people in my generation just figured that um, we would have discovered a pill for death by now. So I, I see a lot of people my age actually uh, astonished that they may have to die, which shouldn't surprise us given that every person ever alive has died. Um, yeah. But <laughs> so, uh, and uh, I, I think that um, this may be a meaningful time. And if there's anything that a pandemic, you know, alongside of a depression in the middle of all of this upheaval might do is it may maybe tweak us a little bit, myself included, it, instead of our goal being to maximize self-esteem yeah. which I'm now I'm trying to have it both ways because earlier on I said self-esteem is good and it's important but remember that we get self-esteem uh, by successfully adhering to the standards of value in our culture where we now live in a culture uh, where it's you're either the best or you're fucked well that's a bad place to be in when we have a system of values where everybody's a failure except the best in each category. So we definitely need to think about, you know, as Nietzsche put it, we've got to reevaluate all values. I don't want to sound like father time, but I was the last generation of Americans where it was okay to be average. Those were great days because the average person is average. You know, so I got a B in organic chemistry and I drank too many beers and we went and tore the goalpost down from the football field and brought it into our dorm room. Now, if you get a B in organic chemistry, you fucking disembowel yourself in the parking lot. You know, if you don't have 5,000 Facebook friends at yeah. a startup company, then you're a failure. So we've got to really reconsider what it means to be a decent and able human so that more people can have a genuine sense of self-regard. But I think we also need to capitalize on ancient wisdom fortified by recent research. And that is that gratitude and humility have been shown to be really potent existential anxiety buffers. Mm -hmm. So when we ask people to just think about a time where they've been grateful, that then eliminates defensive reactions to death reminders. Ditto for reminding people that they should be humble 
Now, this is hard for an American because we're both semi-literate and we're arrogant sons of bitches because to be humble is not to be self-deprecating. It's just to recognize that in the overall scheme of things, uh, you know, you're an inconsequential speck of respiring carbon dust born in a time and place, not of your choosing here for an infinitely small amount of time uh, before you then return to the cosmos. That need not be daunting. As the Epicureans point out, that could be grounds for great exhilaration. And, and so I, I'm kind of cautiously optimistic that maybe all of the unsettling pandemonium associated with the pandemic, maybe just maybe that's given enough of us the involuntarily um, the chosen seclusion where we might step back and go, you know, do I really need three cars in my driveway? Uh, do, do I have to be the partner in the law firm do I, me, do I need to write another book? Or when I planted a peach tree in my backyard that I'll be dead before there's ever peaches, but I'm psyched that the next people who live there might have a snack. Why isn't that great? Anyway, those are the things that I'm perseverating about at present and that give me hope because sometimes uh, you know, the niches of the world might be quite right, that things have to fucking hit the fan. And it is out of the smoldering heap of yesteryear uh, that radically new forms of human activity might arise. And I, I like that. And I, I see some hope there. Yeah, and I think why we admire your work so much is because, um, not to reduce it too much, but I do still think it's a really, I guess, relevant point and a pretty important point, is that when we're thinking about like death anxiety, or rather when we're thinking about the things that we spend most of our time doing and most of the things that we spend our time pretty much valuing, your work kind of shows the silliness of it. So it's it's kind of dual-sided, right? It shows not only the silliness of it, but also the destructiveness of it. And I think for us, a lot of times, because we are so self-important, especially as a nation, if we could kind of look on your research and say, oh shit, man, like, wow, the real reason why I'm really so obsessed with all the cars, the wealth, the fame, et cetera, is literally because I'm afraid of death, which is like inevitable anyway. And then maybe I can start thinking about the long term and how I'm ruining my relationships, how I'm making decisions that I'm going to regret on my deathbed, right? So for us, what's so cool about your work is, I mean, I don't, I don't, and I'm going to say this and I don't think it's an overstatement, but I think if everybody knew why they were doing the bullshit that they were doing, like obviously what you described, I think it would make it much easier for us to kind of look back on it. Like people do it by the way, when they're like ayahuasca, right? Or when they're like, take, you know, kind of psychedelics, peyote, whatever they realize like, holy shit, man, all of this stuff that I spent like the last 20 years doing, it's fucking stupid. And it's all stupid. Yeah. I, I did a, and perfect. And that was Ernest Becker's, uh, you know, he, his last book is Escape from Evil. Quite a trick because he was dead before it came out. But, it, it, you know, it was unfinished. His wife, Marie, decided to publish it anyway. But at the end of that book, it's both somber and uplifting. It's somber because he literally says, I wonder if humans are a viable form of life. Maybe it wasn't such a good idea to have self-conscious pieces of mortal species meat. On the other hand, he's like, well, yeah, but what might happen if everybody heard about these ideas? 
you know, he talked about, oh, I wish somebody would go to the UN and, and tell world leaders about these ideas. That's fine, but this is even better. What, what would happen uh, if in popular discourse, these ideas just started being bandied about and back to one of your points, Leon, which I just think is critical, and that is that talking with people couldn't be more different than talking at them or down to them. And I, I have seen throughout our conversation today, at no point has there ever been any hint of, and I'd like to think for all of us, that none of us are cavalierly proclaiming ourselves um, uh, you know, to be the all-encompassing repositories of wisdom that put us above and therefore uh, not influenced by these notions. In fact, that what I hear us saying, or what I try to say, is I find these ideas so potent because even if I don't like it, it explains too much of who I am and what I do to ignore. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I love that you were on uh, Lex Friedman's podcast also. It's it's fantastic because when you go on a, such a huge platform like that and you're able to disseminate these sorts of ideas and, and get them to a, a wider audience, I mean, that's, that's literally the goal, right? I mean, like you said earlier, um, and uh, it's not a big deal, but as you said, like the academic journals, right? Not everybody reads it, right? But in terms of this emerging sort of platform of podcasting, it, it again, I, we've said this before on the podcast too, there's, you would think that back in the day, people could only tolerate sound bites, right? Or that they wouldn't be able to listen to an entire conversation, that they didn't have the time. But it's it's crazy to see that that's been proven wrong and, and very wonderful, actually, too, because it has a huge audience. And for example, somebody like Joe Rogan, let's say, right, who has hundreds of millions of people downloading his podcast, sometimes having guests just like yourself on the podcast, elucidating some of the most important information out there to a wide range of people. I wonder what more and more of that's going to do as years pass, what kind of ripple effect will that have, right, on yeah. our uh, collective consciousness, so to speak, yeah. right? Yeah, no, I do too. And uh, um, uh, ripples in lots of ways. So I never heard of Lex. This is to my discredit. So he writes to me and he's like, I've got a podcast. <laughs> like, Whatever, dude. Um, and, and, um, I did a lot of podcasts that week and 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 he's like well i don't i only do them in person you know this was in august yeah and i'm like oh all right you know and i hadn't been out of my house since march and it was 200 miles away um so you know i i drive there i fucking get in my car i drive there without stopping you know, I go into Lex's house and he had already told me that his average program is like three hours. <laughs> and I told him that that's absurd. Um, uh, yeah. And, but so I know I'm blubbering, but I, I go there. We never met, never heard of Lex. I got to be honest, I had no idea 
that a lot of people might see it. It, it was a magical conversation. Three hours seemed like nothing, in my opinion, because of his extraordinary skills. And I, I give you guys the same compliment. You knew enough of what I do to ask questions that made me sound like I knew what I was talking about. <laughs> and, uh, so, but the point is I go do this thing with Lex and it gets posted. I never look at myself. I can't stand to see myself. Can't stand to hear myself. Same. And I, I'm like, all right, fine. And then a lot of people are writing to me and stuff. And so I'm like, what is happening? Cause I'm on these things a lot. And then somebody writes to me and they're like, look, Flea Dick, you don't get it. Um, the average podcast that you do has fewer listeners than you have fingers. This guy is actually extraordinarily well-known and highly regarded, which raises the question of why he would be talking to you. But, but, but my point is, is that was fun. That was important. And it is no more important than these ventures. I, I, I just, I, I, I feel like it's not about volume, particularly out of the gate in an enterprise that could have potential ripple effects. Yes. And that, so I'm like, yeah, Lex is great. And, and that's good but you guys are great and that's good. And I don't care if 20 or 200 people listen because that's really not the point. It's not for us to say whether or not, you know, the next world changing, you know, Gandhi, Mother Teresa, Obama conglomerate isn't gonna be the kid in Brooklyn that sees our show whenever and that that is the thing that catalyzes their transformation into the next world change changing human like one of my favorites a dead guy henry miller who wrote novels of yesteryear you know that's his point is like look everyone wants to change the world but nobody wants to change themselves so why don't we start there that was from this krishnamurti dude mm -hmm. but miller's point was it's just not for us to say uh, you know, very few of us are going to be Jesus or Gandhi, but if everybody carries on uh, with integrity and enthusiasm, you just don't know. Uh, we really don't. And, and anyway, it does make me a better person, but I, I decided 40 years ago that it is my delight and obligation to talk to anybody anytime. So I'm like, okay, if somebody wants me to go to a conference and talk to thousands of people, fine. If somebody asked me to talk at a prison or a church, well, fine. And if it's a podcast with thousands, fine. If it's a podcast with six people, why should that be in principle any less of an opportunity 
to have to exchange ideas with people that are interested. So, uh, yeah, ripple on. This is uh, important. But I also, like I say, I, I don't know what I'm talking about. But this is the way that ideas are going to move. And I like how you're moving them. I'll be more diligent because I was just kind of randomly looking you guys over. I don't like to know too much about the people that I'm talking with. So I didn't start till this morning because I didn't want to, I don't know if this is good relative to some of your other folks vis-a-vis -vis your expectations, but I prefer not to know too much so that our conversations can be more spontaneous. Smart. Yeah. Same thing. I do the same thing actually yeah, but what i did notice and again i'll say it i said it at the beginning i'll say it at the end i like what you're doing but i really like the development of the enterprise that i think you're in a groove and i, I can't wait till we move around again because i'm in brooklyn all the time so if oh. we, when the pandemic ends mm -hmm. um, i'll be there we'll, we'll do a little uh we'll exchange favorite pizza and uh Maybe if you if you can stomach it, maybe we'll do a show in person at some point if you want. Oh, to that would be so awesome. Sure. Let's do yeah, it. Yeah, absolutely. Wow, man. Sheldon, uh, just before we wrap up, I'm feeling like I'm sure like you guys have seen Wayne's World. I'm feeling like that the part of Wayne's World where they're like, we're not worthy. No, no. <laughs> This was quite possibly if I, I I don't know if I could say like I don't know because it's hard to obviously um it's hard to sort of uh what's the word quantify it yeah well not quantify it's hard to sort of put it in order but I got to tell you man this has been definitely one of the top three shows I think we've ever done for me oh awesome yeah is, well I had a great time so selfishly awesome thanks for doing it and um, yeah thanks for doing it because we had a good time and thanks for doing it because I, I sincerely believe that it, it's useful and productive. And I'm sure we would agree that the goal here is not to get people to just limply uh, accede to everything that we've said so much as to hopefully um, become dynamically engaged. You know, there'd be nothing better uh, than to get other folks to respond. Um, I'd love to um, someday appear on the same platform, let's say with uh, uh, someone uh, who has different views. It would be great to model uh, respectful disagreement in the service of um, you know exchanging ideas and pushing them forward. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Anyway, you guys know how to find me. If you ever want to talk again, I'll be sitting here pretty much. Oh, absolutely. Oh, we will definitely be in touch soon, obviously. And then I want to ask you if, if we were to, or if anyone in the audience were to follow your work, uh, where could we follow your work? Um, well, nowhere, well, nowhere and everywhere. So I, I, um, I don't <laughs> have a website. Um, I don't have Twitter. I don't have Facebook. Uh, <laughs> write to me. Um, uh, you know, uh, I work at Skidmore College uh, in the psychology department. Folks are clever. They can find me. I do encourage people, if you'd like to exchange ideas, blast me uh, an email message. And what's your email? Where can we find okay. you? It's S. Solomon, S-S-O-L-O-M-O-N at skidmore.edu. 
Awesome. Awesome. Sheldon, thank you, thank so, you so much, much for this for epic conversation. Out. Yeah, my pleasure, gentlemen. Have a great day. All right, you too. Thanks. We'll Take talk care. soon. Bye. Wow. That was like the most epic show we've ever done. That was awesome. Yeah. <laughs> All right. If uh, if you want to follow us, follow us at Seize the Moment Podcast on Facebook and on Instagram and at Seize underscore podcast on Twitter. Mm-hmm. Like, subscribe, hit, hit the, the bell. bell. And then you guys can also follow us at the O4L Online Network at O4LOnlineNetwork.com. And we're up top under the STM podcast section. All right, guys. Thanks again so much for watching and look forward to the next episode. See you next time.